This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show the U.S. Fire Administrator, Dr. Laurie Moore Merrill. 
So we discuss a host of topics from her journey into medicine, working as a firefighter paramedic in Memphis, her work with the IAFF, the transition into the government position she's in now, first responder mental health, sleep deprivation, shifts, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Laurie Moore Merrill. Enjoy. Dr. Laurie, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time on your very, very busy day and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. I'm really grateful to you for having me. So I'm excited about the opportunity to talk with you. I've heard so many wonderful things about this podcast, so I'm honored to be asked to join you. Well, I'm honored to have you on here. So you are sitting in a pretty amazing place right now. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? (laughs) I am actually sitting in the U.S. Fire Administrator's office on the National Emergency Training Center campus that is uh, owned uh, and operated by the U.S. Fire Administration and operated on behalf of FEMA. So we have two schools here. We have the National Fire Academy that was established here in 1974, and we have the Emergency Management Institute as a school here on campus as well. Brilliant. Well, I want to get to your timeline, but just before we do, it's obviously very pertinent. We had that horrendous tragedy, the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Talk to me about the U.S. first responder response to that disaster. Wow, devastating, isn't it? Uh, unbelievable impact of a very high magnitude earthquake. Uh, horrible, horrible tragedy that we are watching unfold. Uh, many of us, you know, in real time almost um, before our eyes. And it's Today, just watching a couple of the rescue teams pulling out uh, babies, children, uh, adults, finding survivors after three days is, uh, you know, it gives us all hope. I know that the two U.S. teams, um, Virginia Task Force One, California Task Force Two, uh, were deployed and arrived yesterday on February the 8th. There's about 161 uh, firefighters in that group, 12 canines, 170,000 pounds of specialized equipment for them. And so they are establishing their base camp and have begun to send out reconnaissance teams and also will be operating in 12-hour shifts uh, as teams 24 hours a day. So they will will change up uh, teams every 12 hours. So they are on search and rescue missions and have also been asked to supervise all the international teams. So uh, the U.S. firefighters are on scene. Now, one of my friends who's Palestinian, um, he's done a lot of relief work in the Syria area. He's getting reports from you know Syrian men and women letting him know. And, and there's obviously a, still a huge need for professional rescuers. A lot of these rescuers are being done by you know a lot of the civilians out there, which is incredible. In an ideal world, do we have the staffing 
for these international responses or as the fire service in general, is there a potential for us to grow this response internationally? Wow, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that we're seeing across the U.S., and, and I've talked um, to some of my international counterparts, they're starting to see some of the same, and that is a, a bit of a shortage in our first responder cadre. Now, how is that happening? Well, first of all, we in the U.S. are having some difficulty recruiting. On the, the back end of COVID, uh, we realized a couple of things, that COVID led to a lot of untimely retirements. Right. A lot of um, first responders, particularly firefighters and paramedics, frankly, were like, you know, enough. I, I don't want to be in this kind of environment, uh, particularly under these circumstances. And so we saw mass retirements during the COVID pandemic. And then we see um, almost a, a difficulty in recruiting that we've never seen before in the fire service. You know, these are valuable jobs. You hear it. This is the best job in the world. And it's true. But we're having a lot of difficulty getting interest in this job. And we think some of that's being attributed to, you know, the generations, perhaps, that it doesn't occur to them. We're not uh, we're not messaging appropriately, perhaps. We're not reaching them at the right time in their life where it occurs to them, this is a path for you. And so we're starting to really think about getting into high schools early, getting into trade or vocational schools and doing some early training, maybe even, you know, even junior highs with our Explorer programs. But across the nation, this uh, recruitment uh, issue has become one of U.S. Fire Administration and our, in fact, our entire nation's fire service, one of our national strategies um, to try to figure out a path forward. So is that, because I'm hearing this a lot too, and I'm working very hard to try and address the firefighter work week and the issues that we're having from that, which I'd love to delve into in a little bit. If we were fully staffed as a U.S. US fire service, would we then have the ability to send more people to these disasters as well? Well, I think that that would be determined under many, many different uh, um, you know, decision processes, of course, uh, because once you start to take some of these folks away, we do have the holes that are left behind that have to be backfilled at home. So both of the departments um, that have deployed in these two task forces, yes, there are there's some voids back in their home departments that now have to be filled through overtime. And so those positions are being filled and they planned for that, right? So the teams that are recognized as urban search and rescue teams, both um, our foreign teams, our international teams and our home teams, um, there are plans for their backfills should they be activated and deployed. And so these departments are prepared for that. But is it, uh, is it hurting these departments? Financially, yes. Uh, they do stand to get, obviously, reimbursement once they're activated and deployed or called up, particularly if it's in a declared disaster uh, or under the circumstances that we're seeing even now. But in that moment, yeah, they are strained. Resources are strained. And so um, having neighbor jurisdictions uh, perhaps, you know, fill in, that helps. But yes, if all of our departments were adequately staffed, which they're not, um, if all of our departments were at least Writing with crews that were at the minimum of our industry standard, uh, which is our NFPA standards, uh, if they were writing with the minimum crew size uh, that they should be, then yes, we would be able to um, use our resources much more expeditiously and not have the pain points for backfill that we have today. So yeah, I guess in general, if we had 
um, adequate staffing in all of our departments across the nation, then yes, it would enable us to be much more agile in our deployment. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. I want to just quickly kind of get through your early life and then we'll kind of come up to some of these current issues again. But I think it is important to hear people's backstories. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure, of course. Um, I uh, grew up in the Nashville, Tennessee area. So I was born in Lebanon, Tennessee, which is just east of Nashville. So grew up, went to high school there in a very small town uh, called Watertown, Tennessee. Uh, I had less than 50 people in my high school class uh, at that time. And I went to Memphis State University to go to undergrad and was uh, headed into medical school uh, when I uh, sort of uh, caught the emergency medical uh, bug, we'll call it. I'd gone to paramedic school in undergrad. I went to to school at night. I, I have uh, I'm a bit of a workaholic. And so I needed to keep busy. So I went to uh, paramedic school at night, undergrad, you know, during the day for college. And um, when I graduated, as I said, headed to med school, the Memphis Fire Department was hiring. And so um, I thought, you know, that sounds really good. And I applied. So I was the sixth woman. I went in as a paramedic, um, sixth woman hired in Memphis. And it was at a time when the department really wasn't equipped well uh, for women. In other words, we still had open bed halls, right? No separation. There was no designation of, you know, bathrooms or showers or anything like that. Uh, we've really come a long way in the last 30 years or so. Um, but at that time, it was a struggle. It was um, some people were okay. I had male mentors because there weren't any other really uh, females to to mentor at that time. But I had my mentors are male, but they are males who wanted to see me succeed, and so uh, they really have uh, lent a lot into my life. But in the department, there were also people who didn't want you there. Uh, we had a lot of girlfriends and wives at the times who didn't want me there uh, or any of the other women who were on the job, and so. The strangest things would happen where you'd have, you know, um, families showing up just to go see what does this female firefighter paramedic look like? Um, and they're living in the station with my spouse or my boyfriend or or whatever at the time. And so there was a lot of different dynamics that were very uncomfortable. And so you learn early on, I think, the become comfortable being uncomfortable. And that to me is really the baseline for being bold and uh, and leading forward, right? Growing in your experiences. Don't let negative experiences just be negative experiences. Turn them into what did I learn? How did I grow from that? How can I be better? And how did it enable me to have it not be such a negative the next time I experience it? And so my early experiences really led to that kind of baseline. Um, my, uh, my parents were both blue collar uh, workers. I have um, two sisters, one older, one younger, and they are all still in Tennessee. My mom passed um, just a, a few years ago, so very close with my mom, who was also uh, a workaholic. And so given that, that's how I was raised, that if uh, you can do what you want to do, but you got to work for it. And so that's, uh, that's what I've been taught. Now, were you fire medic or EMS specific? So we were trained uh, as firefighter paramedics, but in Memphis at the time when I went on the job, 
um, the paramedics were uh, operating a single role. Now, what that means is, as you can see, cross-trained dual role, and they operate as both. But at that time, Memphis was operating as single role paramedics. So we were um, deployed only on ambulances. Well, what happened with that later on is because a lot of departments didn't understand that if you do that, and they were trying to capitalize on their, uh, you know, a lesser resource, paramedics are hard to come by, and they were back then. And so when you're trying to capitalize that, you put them on the ambulances, the transport units, uh, to try to leverage them the best you can. Well, when you do that, however, uh, under the FLSA law, the Fair Labor Standards Act, there is something called a 7K exemption. And that 7K exemption applies to law enforcement and fire. But under the, the 7K, um, with the fire side, it says that you don't have to pay overtime, and I'm paraphrasing, you don't have to pay overtime and over um, 53 hours, right, a week. Well, and that's calculated on a 28-day period. So 53 work hours a week on a calculated on a, a 28-day period. But if you exceed that threshold, which you do if you're uh, looking at a firefighter calendar or shift, then you pay overtime. Well, as you know, in norm in uh, regular, I shouldn't say normal, in regular workforce, overtime is 40 hours, right? If you go to work and you work 40 hours a week and you work more than that, you know, the nine to fives or the eight to fours or whatever your schedule, if you work over 40 hours, you get overtime. Well, in the fire service, you don't, not until you hit a 53 hour threshold based on this overall calculation. Well, in Memphis, they had applied that. They treated the medics who were operating single role just like firefighters uh, in a cross-trained um, perspective. But there were some other parts of, of tests that have to be met in the law to determine. Well, what does that mean? Well, after a few years, the medics are realizing, hold on a second, we were not part of the 7K exemption. We should be paid over 40 hours, overtime, right? So that's uh, overtime that we have been amassing for years now and not been paid because they were treating us under the 7K exemption like firefighters and yet not deploying us as such. So there was a lawsuit filed in Memphis, uh, fire department. Um, there were uh, other lawsuits that came quickly after that. Dayton, Ohio, Chicago, Ohio, Anne Arundel uh, County, Maryland, uh, Anchorage, Alaska. There are so many of them who were doing the same thing. And so a lot of single role medics across the country uh, filed these uh, class action suits and we got our overtime uh, back. And so when I left Memphis Fire, I was recruited uh, to join the International Association of Firefighters in 1993. So about seven years after I went on the job, uh, I was recruited to go work for um, the IFF or the labor union. And then that suit uh, sort of kicked in. We got our, our pay, uh, overtime pay um, from the, the years past. So that's how that plays out. Now, you asked a question, right? And you got probably a lot more answer than you wanted on that one. A lot better answer than I was expecting. So with that, were you working 24s as a medic in that role? Oh, yes. We were on 24-hour shifts. We worked the exact same shifts as firefighters, same station. I mean, we were part of the fire department. We were in the fire department. We were firefighter medics in the, in the department. It was just a matter of what vehicle you were deployed on and whether or not there was a rotation between fire trucks engines and trucks, aerials, hazmat units, or that transport unit, the ambulance, right? And so um, given those two, where you were deployed, what your expectations were, 
if you were expected to go to a fire, if you were expected to wear turnout gear and perform on the scene of a fire. So there's all these tests in the law that have to be met for you to be able to claim as a department to claim that 7K exemption. And so a lot of departments had um, these lawsuits and had settlements over time. And that's why today you will see in Memphis, their cross-trained dual role, everybody, and they're rotated into different assignments. You have actually have paramedics riding engine companies uh, and truck companies, right? Chicago's doing the same thing. They Part of their settlement was they had to train 10% of every fire recruit class had to be medics who were already on the job who were pulled in and trained as firefighters. So there were settlements that varied throughout those departments, but it really changed the face of um, how our fire departments operate with EMS today. It's one of the reasons that drove us to deploy paramedics on engine companies rather than this single mindset that EMS is only about that ambulance uh, or that transport unit. EMS, and in fact, and fire engine is your baseline EMS unit. Right. They we have more fire engines than we do any other vehicle in the fire department. So that becomes your baseline unit for all hazards, including EMS. Beautiful. Well, with you being a medic in a city, which I was for most of my career, I was EMT and then medic. Um, what was the op tempo during your career? Were you running a lot? Oh my goodness, yes. Um, so back in those days, um, I was assigned to the first, second, third, fourth as I rotated the busiest units. And in fact, Memphis had, uh, they had units in the top four call volumes in the nation for many years. So we had a lot of call volume. Uh, we had a lot of, uh, Memphis is very high impoverished area. Uh, it was back in the eighties. It still has a good bit of, uh, of poverty there even today, but those areas tend to lend themselves to higher call volume as well for many reasons, um, whether it is, you know, for fire, uh, for certainly for emergency medical, especially if you don't have sufficient neighborhood clinics, then the 911 system becomes, you know, your go-to for healthcare even. And so that's what we experienced a lot uh, in Memphis. Also, um, a lot of the neighborhoods, you know, were had propensity to violence, uh, violent acts. We would, you know, have a, a lot of conversation about the types of calls that we made. And often on, on weekends, you know, it's okay. We're, you know, the knife and gun club tonight. Uh, is what we can anticipate. And you would have, you know, nights where you make multiple shootings and multiple stabbings. And we know a lot of our urban core um, cities, even today, have that issue. We watch uh, as that happens. One of the things that's unique about that, though, is even with that kind of call volume uh, and having that kind of system, an emergency medical system within the fire department, within that that overall safety net of response, you can change, and we watch this uh, with some of the numbers in various urban departments over years. Yes, we have shootings, we have stabbings, but if you can deploy sufficient resources from your EMS cadre within you know, the fire department um, to get there quickly, deploy talented, trained medics who can intervene in that trauma, whatever it is, you can literally change the homicide rate. Why? Because the people aren't dying, right? They may have still been shot. You have the same number of shootings, but they don't die. And part of that is because the, the EMS system is good, right? So I know a lot of people don't put that kind of thinking in perspective. Uh, we need to change, you know, people getting shot so we can reduce the number of, of, uh, of the shootings in this country. That's for sure. But 
while that is in progress and until that um, realization happens, we need to make sure we've got solid fire-based EMS systems in this country. I had Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on who wrote On Combat, On Killing and some of the other books that he's got. And he was talking about how skewed some of these murder statistics can be, especially in law enforcement. He said, yes, we have X amount shot and killed, which is getting worse and worse and worse. But he said, you've also got to remember that a lot of them are wearing ballistic armor now. They, uh, we have phenomenal paramedics out there. We have phenomenal trauma surgeons. We have tourniquets. So our response actually skews the, the kind of weight of some of these violent crimes on our streets because the protection is good, the, the EMS and the, the hospital care is good. Yes, absolutely true. Absolutely true. And I think that really gives us the whole perspective. I mean, we still have a goal uh, as a nation. We should have and maintain the goal of reducing uh, the, the number of shootings, right? Uh, we certainly want that to, to be curtailed. Uh, but in the meanwhile, we need to have these good interventions. Well, I want to get to your journey into the union, but just before we do, seven years, high tempo, you know, 48, excuse me, 24-hour shifts. What did you see within your own health, the impact of, of what you saw and also the, the sleep deprivation that becomes chronic after years? You know, that's a, that's a great question uh, because obviously there are health impacts uh, on our individual responders. And that is something that we need to, to continue to pay attention to. So um, speaking for myself, yes, was there a change in my uh, the mental status of what I began to uh, ingest? What did I process normally from a mental perspective so that it didn't continue to bother me? And what I mean by that is what gave me nightmares? What caused me to lose sleep? What are things I can't get out of my head? Uh, what are things that are still today um, brought up in memory because of something else that I hear or a sound or a smell uh, or somebody else telling a different story that makes me think of that experience. Do I still have that? Yes, I do. I can't imagine anybody in the fire EMS arena that, uh, or and even law enforcement for sure, uh, who have, who don't have those kinds of experiences, those kinds of things that are stored in their memory. Uh, we have to really be cognizant about, as I said, processing those uh, in a way that they don't cause negative long-term impact. To do that, we have to understand that bad things happen. We have to understand when and when we can't change uh, those things and when we can't change the outcome of those things by intervention. And that helps us then, I think, to, to process. For me, um, I had... Um, an appropriate, I think, amount of negative growing up, right? And I had, I was allowed to have, you know, bad things happen to me. I wasn't sheltered or protected or, uh, you know, had people all around me. Uh, my parents were not uh, helicopter parents who protect everything. Um, so that helped me build resilience through my life because I experienced bad things. I experienced bad relationships, uh, people, mean people right? And learn how to deal with that on my own. And so these are things that, unfortunately, we have witnessed over the last couple of decades, not having our kids, we, we protect them too much. I'm guilty. So I, I'm not pointing fingers here. I'm guilty. And we don't allow them to go through bad experiences. And so they don't build that resilience of how do I get back up after a bad experience? 
Well, that translates into, and you get a really bad experience. Now it's overwhelming rather than it being a stair step to processing things mentally in a way that you actually grow from them. You learn from them and you, you process them as being perhaps even, you know, opportunities to engage and make a change rather than threats uh, or things that hold you back. So um, for me, do I still have those things in my head? Yes. Do they still um, come up from time to time? Yes, they do. Uh, memories that you wish you didn't have. But at the same time, I also couple those memories with other outcomes and build on those to help encourage other responders and understand too the programs that we have to put in place to build resilience, particularly mental resilience in the next generation of responders. So there's a couple of things I want to, you know, almost play devil's advocate for, but the first one, um, this isn't really a devil's advocate. This is more a different way of thinking. I ended up working and testing for four different departments on the East Coast and the West Coast. I always say this, and this is hand on heart true, probably one of the best departments in the country, probably one of the worst. So pretty, you know, interesting spectrum. And it was always the same thing. It was three of the four. I did the polygraph, which when you research polygraph really is smoke and mirrors to get people to admit to something that they are guilty about. Um, and then uh, I think it's called the Minnesota personality test, but the psych test that we use, Minnesota something, um, is as I've had many of my psychologists um, guests on the show. It has use if it's used with a spectrum of other tools in a very, very deep psychological, um, you know, analysis of someone. But standalone, it's it's pretty basically useless. So what I've seen from so many of these guests is so many of us wearing the uniform have childhood trauma. And there's even like a statistic of I think it's like eighty percent of us have a score of thirteen or more on the the childhood trauma experience, um, you know, list that they have previous childhood trauma. So one of the things I think that we do terribly is we don't create counseling from day one in the fire service. So I argue if I'm going to go and get hired by a department and PT'd every day, why not in that six month or year probationary period, do we not take that same funding, use the background checks to filter out and the physical tests and the academic tests, and then use the funding from the polygraph and this psychology test and use it instead for four, five, six counseling sessions. If someone did bring something in, now they can immediately start to process it. And you've created a relationship from a, with a counselor and normalized mental health conversations from day one. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. And to me, that is the very premise of resilience building uh, in all of us. Right. Whether it is uh, the newer generation that's coming on, whether it's people that are already on the job, uh, as you said, that have been on the job for years and have never had the opportunity to really either understand their own mental cognition and how they think or why they think that way. Um, I love that idea. And I think if we could put in these kinds of resilience building or opportunities to talk to somebody, opportunities to, to be able to, you know, have people walk us through normal processing mentally that we may have never been able to experience. So uh, I hear you on the bad experiences as, as kids. I think uh, I would agree with that statistic uh, that you brought up. Haven't read that, haven't looked into it, but uh, I certainly can speak, you know, from my own experience that that would be true. And so these, uh, these things that we bring along and the other group that I think we don't um, are not moving forward enough quickly enough are our veterans. 
I think our veterans uh, who are coming back are so um, perfect for service in law enforcement and in fire, but we're not probably leaning in enough, quickly enough uh, for their mental well-being as well. How do you transition them? And this is for you know veterans, whether they're going into public safety, uh, you know, servants or not. Um, but leaning in enough to make sure that they are transitioning here properly back to wherever they're they are going to be in a non-military capacity. How do we turn that into something that is positive for them? I'll give you an example of what I mean and why I think in the fire service we can do better is that in the wildland fire space, not the structural fire space, but the wildland fire space, um, there is a group up in uh, Washington State uh, area, uh, Northern California, that area, that is working, in fact, with veterans returning uh, from service and in foreign lands, from foreign assignments, where they've actually been in combat, they've been in that kind of scenario, and they are um, have built a program for them to bring them into the wildland um, resilience landscape kind of space. And so they give them chainsaws, they give them all of the, the tools that they need to make sure we have a good resilient landscape and that we are um, you know, clearing the brush and we're clearing the trees that don't need to be there so that we're lowering the risk, right? Well, what they've learned is that these vets are tre treating their equipment like their chainsaw is the same. They clean it, they care for it, just like they did their firearm, right? So this tool, they transitioned them to have their tools, to own their tools, it's yours, um, and they care for it and they deploy in teams. And they so they, they've transitioned them into a whole different space and they've done so successfully. I think we could learn a lot from those kinds of, um, you know, purposeful transitions for our vets. And we could do it in the structural environment as well. What was the name of that program? Because I almost feel like it was maybe featured on um, Down to Earth, uh, a docuseries with Zac Efron and Darren O'Lean. But I, I remember them talking and it was specifically people learn. Uh, maybe it was a maybe it was a tree felling service. But anyway, I, I'm rambling now. So what was the name of the... the, the uh... I'm, you know what? I'm going to have to get that for you, James, um, because I don't remember the name of it myself. But I have somewhere in this office a brochure on that program that I'm going to find and get to you. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, I think one of the issues that I see is the mental health story kind of hits a wall at the stigma conversation. And then, sadly, we're talking about resources. I think there's so few culturally competent clinicians that really understand how to work with us as well. But the conversation I think that needs to happen next is not, oh, you can deal with your mental struggles. But as you said, if you're able to process this, now you foster resilience. And even with the, the naysayers, I always tell them this, if you're someone who doesn't believe that you know mental health is a thing, okay, that's fine. If you do not process the things that keep your mind busy, you cannot operate in that flow state. So you may miss that snag you know, in the wildland setting. You may miss that darkening smoke in, in a structure fire or, or miss a child you know, on a search. So... I think we, if we did a, a, if we had the kind of philosophy, firstly, that you processing trauma will make you, you know, stronger. And I had the same thing with a back injury. I figured out what went wrong. I did a whole load of rehab and came back stronger and fixed the thing that got me hurt in the first place. I think the other side 
is, and I've, <laughs> I've had this from the hiring processes, there's this facade that you have to be a choir boy to become a firefighter when the you know the absolute opposite is true you have to have seen and done some horrible stuff really to make you want to do what we do you know and process it though so i think that's the other side that i think wildland does very well i've had people on here that were on you know inmate crews that were then given a second chance and became wildland firefighters so getting rid of that you know holier than thou a candidate element i think would be another thing that would attract people that maybe had you know some blips in their past dealt with it correctly and now would become a more resilient responder i absolutely concur with you and i i think that um you know in our recruitment problem that i've just mentioned uh that may be one of the solutions that we need to have a look at is are we doing and processing our background checks appropriately what are the thresholds um and i know because of the ems side of the house we do have to maintain um you know appropriate thresholds for entering people's homes, for caring for people in the back of an ambulance. I mean, there are thresholds that we need to stay hard and fast on. Uh, but if we are processing for, you know, structural firefighting only, maybe even hazmat, you know, those sorts of things in operations. Um, yeah. Are there some things that we might be able to adjust on background checks um, that would get us a different cadre of people? I think that we should. And so these are things that that we are talking about. I've got a working group, in fact, that is talking through some of those things uh, on recruitment and how do we adjust, where do we need to adjust, and what do we have to hold true uh, to make sure we have quality people who are prepared to serve and also be resilient. You know, I want to go back, James, to something you said about the, the clinicians who work with us and the stigma. That's absolutely true. And I'll talk about the stigma first. You know, um, it's probably been 10 years ago now, um, when the IAFF released a magazine and they put on the front of the magazine a firefighter who was um, sort of shaded over and the headline was Out of the Shadows. And it was all about uncovering this stigma that we have all held on to. And everybody says it's macho. Hey, women do it too. Everybody, no one wants to be seen as weak. And uncovering that and just saying it's okay to not be okay um, and have people to align and say, you know, okay, I'm not okay. I need to talk to somebody. I need, it's hard for people to ask for help, but if we can lower that threshold, and I think that, that just that um, headline went a long way to saying it's okay not to be okay. And we would have people back then at the, at the IFF, there was a number that if you want more information, call. Well, it was more information to get information on a program, right, that you could go to. We were getting calls from firefighters going, listen, I'm, I want to kill myself. Um, I need somebody to call me back now. It was going to an office. You know, we had no intention of taking, you know, helpline calls. And yet that's what came. That's how desperate the need was. And it wasn't a few, it was hundreds. And so we knew then that something has to be done. And that's how it grew into a behavior health center uh, that the IF has, and they're about to open another one, I think. But one of the things you said too about the clinicians, um, <laughs> clinicians who want to be helpful and with all you know, the right hearts in the right place, ready, training is perfect. They're fantastic at what they do. Right up until they hear the experiences that first responders have had 
and it's overwhelming. They can't imagine. And we have had time and time again uh, within the culture, these psychologists, clinical psychologists walking away because they can't take it. They needed to go talk to someone afterwards, right? Because they have now had the trauma from talking to a first responder. And so we do need people who are trained and who understand the scope and the scale of what our responders experience so that they are prepared to help them. 100%. Yeah, and I think that's that's what I've heard so many times is the, what I call the EAP Russian roulette. You know, they'll, they'll yes. be given a phone number. I've had people that the phone number doesn't work anymore. So many people that were put and all of a sudden they're talking to a marriage counselor or someone who specializes in children. And, you know, the, the, anything from, as you said, the counselor bursts into tears to someone says, get out. I can't help you. And I'm, I always say this and it's so haunting. Those are the stories I hear. How many people was at the final nail in the coffin? That was the last thing they heard before they went and, you know, completed suicide. So it's such an important conversation to find the right people who understand our verbiage. And there's a, a group here, the Florida Firefighters Safety and Health Collaborative. Dustin Hawkins initiated a thing called Redline Rescue, which is phenomenal. And it creates this network of, of fellow firefighters and then clinicians who go through this program. And by the time they come through, they understand us and they've proven that they are the right kind of person to sit in front of us. I love that idea. And, you know, one of the things I think we've learned out of this is that peer counseling, uh, just having somebody who has been there beside you, that's the person you need to talk to. That is invaluable. I, I'm familiar with that program in Florida. And uh, yes, they are doing great things, great things. And it's all about that peer counseling connection. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to what I would consider the biggest elephant in the room in not only the mental health space, but all of our health space. I spent 14 years, most of which I did the 56-hour work week. Many, two of the four departments were woefully understaffed. So I was doing the force mandatory. So basically 80-hour weeks and single father going through divorce, going through paramedic school, you know, the perfect storm. But was very fortunate, kind of like you had stuff when I was younger, but just had by accident a lot of the right things that allowed me to process that and gave me the resilience. So I never got to that dark place. The reason this podcast was started because was because I went to f uh, six funerals in two years, and it was a gamut of mental and physical issues from overdoses to you know cardiac arrests, etc., I'm sitting here now in Ocala, Florida, which just has made the news because we've lost two firefighters in Marion County within three weeks of each other. One of the guys I knew well, Alan. So this is an ongoing crisis. I mean, I started my podcast six years ago, and here we are having this conversation again. But 700 plus interviews now with many people from neuroscience and sleep medicine, every other industry on the planet understands the damaging impact of sleep deprivation but yet what i've watched the fire service is we're so good at showing up regardless that we've kind of been duped and i don't think it's coming from a malicious place i think it's just we're so indoctrinated to the fact that we'll show up anyway some literally volunteer in this country that we and then you're so sleep deprived that we miss the fact that no one else does what we do and those people really lives aren't at stake as much. I mean, they are, you know, if you're an airline pilot or driving a, you know, a tractor trailer, but we're going to burning buildings. We're doing, you know, pediatric drug calculations. So 
Talk to me about your observation of the work week, because we have a lot of departments in the Northeast that are working what I would consider what should be an industry standard, 24-72. We have federal firefighters that are working 24-24, you know, so, um, you know, through your eyes now in this amazing position you're in, but also from the IAFF position, what what is your lens on the firefighter work week? Wow, that is a uh, a big question, and it's been a question for many, many years. Uh, it's an uncomfortable subject, uh, too, right? So I talked earlier about being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Um, so now uh, we're going to do that. So I tell you, this has been something that is uh, so regionally diverse across the country. As you said, in the Northeast, we're looking at uh, many of the departments were on 1014s. You'll see some departments with, you know, on 12s, rotating 12s. Uh, but by and large, what happens when you go to those kinds of split shifts, you end up having enough trades that you end up working 24s anyway. And so a lot of those departments, Boston for one, has resorted back to a 24-hour shift segment. Um, we see down south, they work a, a true 56 down there work week, which is typically, uh, you know, a three-tour segment on, off, on, off, on, off four and so we see that spread from the south all the way up through, you know, Virginia area, some across the middle. Um, then we get, you know, toward the more of the west coast where we're seeing those uh, 4896s have become pretty popular out there. And I tell you, um, you know, the, the, they all vary. Uh, the range of them vary. All of them have their own pros and cons from the firefighter perspective, um, certainly. And I think that, you know, from their perspective is a big piece of this because sometimes there are departments that um, the call volume is such that you can sustain the 4896 scenario. The other thing that was driving that 4896 scenario was um, how far away the firefighters lived from where they worked because many times firefighters can't afford a place in the jurisdiction where they work. Um, so that was driving a lot of them. They had to drive in for hours because of the living outside the jurisdiction. And then um, there are other factors like, like that, the residency where firefighters are actually required to live uh, in the jurisdiction. And so that varies again uh, from city to city, county to county, and how those rules are set up. So does that play a factor? Of course it does. Um, call volume plays a factor. I think that there are, um, you know, various uh, ways to look at this. And then at the end of the day, you've got also opportunities for shift trades. That's going to play in too, right? So we've seen uh, if there's anything firefighters can do, it's figure out a system and how to work around it. And so with that in mind, many of them will, they'll do trades and set up trades um, on an ongoing basis where they end up working something different than the shift of the department anyway. So having said that, this is, uh, as you can tell, it's all over the place. All the shifts are all over the place. There is not a lot of consistency uh, in the shifts. So the question is, what should it be? Well, again, multiple variant um, factors play in here rather than just saying it should be this, because all of these considerations are important. I think that we have to understand some things about the longer on shift time uh, beyond a 24. 
once we, uh, our bodies typically do well in that, uh, that 24 segment, of course, you're going to be exhausted when you leave if you're in a high volume station. The problem is if you would go home and then sleep or recover and have that time to recover for your next shift, that's one thing. But the problem is there's a lot of firefighters, and this has to do with salaries, it has to do with, um, you know, again, family factors. If you've got kids, maybe you can go home and sleep. All of those things play in so that we are reducing our recovery time. And anytime we have factors that reduce the recovery time, now we're getting into dangerous impact on our bodies. And so that recovery time has to happen. Um, so going to another job on your day off, going home and having to care for family uh, on your day off so that you're limiting your recovery time, I think is as much a problem uh, or as much an issue, not a problem, but as much an issue as us talking about the length of your shift. So um, days off matter. That um, overall 24, again, we can, with the recovery, we can do that. The 48s concern me for several reasons. If you're in a high volume area and on a 48 and you're not rotating from one apparatus to another so that there are rest periods, then that your, your body starts to uh, really start to have issues uh, being up that long a period of time with no respite, no sleep. And so given that, uh, we are also experiencing greater opportunity for exposure. Well, if we're already talking about exposure being uh, an issue, both physically and mentally, physically for if you're making a lot of fire in many of our cities, we have a lot of fire still happening. And so cancer is a big deal. Now I've just capitalized on my uh, exacerbating my exposure in a shorter amount of time, uh, potentially. We're also talking about a lot more EMS calls. So now my mental capacity uh, and my mental exposure uh, is also exacerbated in a shorter amount of time. So I think there are things that we have to consider. And in my opinion, we need the research in this space to know much more definitively. We have for years tried to translate research from truck drivers who you mentioned, uh, from emergency room physicians or interns or residents uh, who've had sleep studies. The problem is we have had almost no sleep studies. And if they are, they're on very small samples in the firefighting realm. So until we get some good definitive research and research that can be replicated and try to discern the results of that research, it is very difficult for us to still um, try to translate research from other industries, other occupations to this one. Well, firstly, I'm working on that. So I'm going to circle around with you. I've just, by pure chance, been joined up with one of the most respected research com companies in the planet that works with NASA, DARPA, the SEALs, etc. And a local businessman is funding it. So I can't wait to come back and, and bring that to you because I know it exists. I've had all these people on the show that exist. The problem I have with the conversation, I agree 100%. I think the 24 is the is the shift that a firefighter should do. And being one for 14 years, I can't imagine doing, you know, morning checkouts and pass on and all the rigs and the drug doses and running calls and doing reports. And it's 12 hours in and now I've got to, you know, high five someone and they got to do it all over again. It doesn't make any sense to me. We have the capacity to be able to sleep in a fire station for a short amount of time, um, albeit not, but not good sweet sleep. 
the issue that I have is the people making the decisions about the firefighters are working the 40-hour week, which is the standard week for any civilian. And yet, at the moment, it's okay because a lot of these departments, their op-tempo is ridiculous. And everywhere I've ever worked, I was running all day and all night and I was on a 56-hour work week. So it wasn't a low, you know, quiet station. We have this conversation, the analogy I use is the, the Rubik's Cube. So we talk about spinning the colors. Oh, well, what about, you know, 4896? What about 12s? Well, no one ever says, hey, this cube's kind of big. Why don't we make this, this cube smaller? So the Northeast, their work week is a 42-hour work week. A lot of the other places is a 56 or a 72-hour work week. I would argue that Memphis or Anaheim, California or Orlando, Florida have the same, if not more, call volume than the Northeast. So why is it that those men and women are asked to work two more eight-hour days a week than FDNY or Boston or whoever? So this is the problem that I have we always seem to kind of look at the extremities. Well, this one station, they run one call a week. Okay, well, if you live in an apartment complex, do you expect your security guard to be running around chasing bad guys the whole time? Occasionally, you're just there because you're the insurance policy. But I want to advocate for all the people that are getting their rear ends just driven into the ground. And when you listen to the sleep medicine experts... Sleep deprivation is behind the mental health issues that we see. It's behind the cancer that we see, the weight gain, the strokes. I mean, you know, and even think about COVID. We sent the most sleep-deprived, immune-compromised men and women to the front line while everyone else hid in their house. So if we don't have this underlying health conversation of getting the work week down to 42 hours, we're not going to fix mental health, cancer, et cetera, because that is the other elephant in the room, in my opinion. Oh, I absolutely concur with you. Absolutely concur. And most people, even some of our local decision makers, don't really understand the overall impact of that. So what does that mean? And here's why it's been an issue before. Um, to go to a 42-hour work week, you almost have to go to a four-platoon system. And most of our departments work a three-platoon system, uh, or you've got to employ some sort of Kelly Day or Debit Day system, right? So um, a lot of that is is not well understood by decision makers. And what's the overall impact of going to a 42-hour work week? you got to hire more people. Well, if we already have an issue with having enough people or being able to recruit enough people to ride on these crews, um, that's that's our struggle, right? Therein lies the struggle is understanding what is the minimum number of firefighters and paramedics we need in this country to be the safety net, to make sure that they are there and available to respond and to respond, right? Um, and all of that plays in. But yes, in the best world, best case scenario, if you ask me what is, um, you know, what's our optimal, I would say to you, absolutely, give me minimums of four persons on a crew, on uh, any kind of firefighting crew, engines, trucks, aerials, uh, minimum of four. You've got to have then as well uh, shifts, appropriate shift work. Uh, with a minimum of 42-hour work week, um, and then be able to uh, deploy and make sure they can train. What that does is free up not only your um, uh, training pools to be able to make sure that you've got now everybody is, you know, the best on their game, that they are able to be trained in policy and protocols and operational um, engagement, right? All of those things that sometimes, you know, we've got departments in this area that you don't get to go to training but once a year i mean you do station training from time to time but 
um, you know, that's the first thing that gets cut when we start cutting, you know, crew size and we start reducing the number of personnel on a department. One of the first things that gets cut is training. And so these are the things that are impacted. We don't have enough people to do the job. So I agree with what you're saying, but that is absolutely driven by uh, it's a numbers game. And for us to be able to do that, we must have uh, opportunity to hire more people in order to maintain that. So you're you're spot on. So adding to the court case, um, you did a lot of data analysis with IFF, and then and then immediately after as well. One of the things that again has been verified by other industries. I mean, John Captain John Cordell was a naval officer who um, became one of their sleep gurus. And you think about just one naval accident, the not even millions, the billions that that cost. When I look at my career, the people on workman's comp, the medical, um, you know, retirements, the uh, on-duty deaths, line-of-duty deaths, the mistakes that we make, the lawsuits that are attributed to that, the overtime covering the people that are off on mental health, you know, injury, etc. We are bleeding money the way that we work our responders. So even if you're not compassionate enough to really advocate for your people, I think most people are. So we all know there's some people out there that really don't care. Um, then the financial side, you know, say, oh, we don't have the money for another shift. I disagree. If you actually proactively invest in your people and if we call ourselves a business, look at Virgin, look at Google, you would actually save money hand over fist on down the road, but you have to be the courageous leader that is not worried about a budget year, but actually will, as they say, plant the seed for the tree under which the shade you will never know. I think I've got that right. Oh, and I love that. That's absolutely true. Uh, the way to to facilitate change here is taking the risk and playing it out uh, longer term, because I think you're right. If I can have sufficient people and be able to train, make sure they all have the appropriate health and safety equipment, make sure that they um, have the appropriate health care, um, have, uh, you know, lessen their exposures, all of those things, um, then yes, I have a much healthier group at the end of the day. Now I'm spending less money on payouts for, you know, bad things that happen, um, whether it's in a healthcare arena or other kind of, uh, of obligations. But I think you're, I think that's it. I think that it is a long-term game. And it is making sure that we are putting systems in place uh, with the overall purpose of having a healthy, alert, well-trained, well-equipped group of first responders, because that trans translates into them being able to engage quickly in the community and be the best they can be to deliver service to the community, be there in their time of need and deliver it well. Well, taking on the uh, generational thing that you touched on earlier, I think it's very interesting too. You know, there's this, I would argue, facade. You know, like we talk about the World War II, the greatest generation. The more I learn about that generation, the more I realize that actually grandpa did incredibly heroic things, but did not come home and process it well and became a drunk and slapped around grandma, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a very, you know, unpopular opinion, but it's what we hear in this multi-generational trauma that we're seeing. The the young generation, the millennials and the Gen Zs, a lot of the ones that do want to be a firefighter is they're the ones that are going to get themselves in great shape. They're going to educate themselves. But I think they're also looking and going, wait a second, you, you're not creating a good environment for health, for mental health, etc. So my other argument would be, 
if we put that back as a priority and we say, hey, we're actually going to be doing 2472, I'm sure that that candidate pool will suddenly spike again because the younger generation who's a lot more educated, you know, will look and say, well, you used to, you know, you fire people because of vaccine mandates and, you know, all your your responders are, look like they're, you know, one step from the grave. Now you've got this vibrant group and, you know, they're, they're all excited about the fire service again. And then that also extends to mentorship. I've got a great friend who's got a mentor program here in Ocala. If you are then getting fired up firefighters going into the community, especially the underserved areas, which is, in my opinion, how we fix the diversity issue, you remove the barrier to entry, you find the best candidates from all back, all walks of life, you raise them up, you get people excited about the fire service. I guarantee you, again, it's not going to happen overnight, but we would turn that deficit into a gain and it would be back to when we used to test and it was a thousand people you were competing with. I think that's absolutely true. You know, I had um, the U.S. Fire Administrator Summit back in October of last year, and we're going to do that annually um, during during my administration, at least. And one of the things that we did was had a state of science portion of that that's still available uh, that people can watch online. But that state of science, we had a segment on cancer. We had a segment on behavior health. And then we had a segment on recruitment. And so my uh, my executive assistant was there and she was there to take notes and all of this. And and she listened to very attentively um, all of the presentations, these little TED talk style. We had some of the best researchers in our industry there and each of them spoke 10 minutes, a uh, very pointed, very fact based. But after she listened to the cancer piece and the behavior health piece and then heard the recruitment and she looks at me and says, well, no wonder you have a recruitment problem. Who would want to do this job? And I'm like, oh my goodness, that is exactly true. Someone else hearing this and we're telling you all the bad things that can happen to you, who would want to do this? So that's not the way we need to recruit. So I think you're right. I think that we have to do better messaging, but we've got to do better also. We need to be honest about the job, but let's not take that pendulum all the way to all the the negative stuff that can happen, but let's talk about the things that we can prevent from happening and those uh, and, and put those mechanisms in place uh, along the way. And I agree, I agree. I think yes, we can bring in a lot more of the uh, the Gen Zs and get them a lot more interested. You know, one of the other things that you you brought up was the, the diversity perspective. And I'll just uh, you know, as a, a woman who went into the fire service, and I told you a little bit about some of the challenges, I didn't give you great detail on a lot of the challenges that that I have uh, about, had back then. But what we're seeing with women in the fire service is that we we can have gains and then we'll drop back. And then we gain again and drop back. And what we're seeing, though, is there's some fluctuation and after about five years on the job, or if they choose to have a family, um, you know, different elements that occur, we have barriers still on this job. So whether it is not a psychologically safe workspace uh, because they're not treated appropriately or just as, you know, they're just here to be firefighters. They, you know, nobody is, uh, you know, wearing on their sleeve that, you know, I'm a woman, I'm different. It's I'm here, I'm a firefighter, right? And I think that that's the mentality that I see our, our women bring into the job. But the minute that they are either pregnant, have a child, um, things change. 
right? So we're we're starting now to talk more about breastfeeding in the station. But before that was like, oh my goodness, that was, you couldn't even say that. Uh, and now we, we are on a track, I think, to make that normal, right? We have these little changes that have occurred in the fire service along the way that you know, at the start, everybody is, is uh, you know, alarmed is probably too strong a word, but, uh, you know, alert to change. And everybody's uncomfortable. But after a while, it normalizes. And and that's the way that, that things are. And I think, you know, for women, breastfeeding in the station, uh, knowing you've got you know, children at home, these life changes should not cause you to have to quit your job right? They shouldn't cause you to have to go seek another career because you want to have a family. And so these are the kinds of things that I see we've got to overcome still. And that again, is just the, the, you know, the women's perspective, but I, I think it's relevant to talk about that. These are our life changes because, you know, when our male counterparts, just because they have a family, they don't quit, right? But how do you find childcare if both of you, and we have that a lot too, both uh, you know parents are on the job, how do you find childcare? For me, that was an issue. I was a single mom and uh, I had another firefighter's wife uh, who was on a, they were on a different, he was on a different shift, but they took care of my child when I was on a 24. So these are things that we need to think about to enable, um, you know, whether it is, Partnering up with uh, and having childcare, you know, uh, across a, a couple of firefighters on different shifts. I mean, there are solutions out there, and, and we just need to be cognizant to reduce some of these barriers um, that can cause you mental anguish, right? Because uh, right to the point of quitting your job because you can't find a resolution. Absolutely, and not to flog a dead horse, but an extra twenty-four between shifts would also help, even in that area, as far as the family yes. dynamic. That's exactly right. Well, I want to be very, very mindful of your time. I know you've got a short window. I want to throw one more thing at you and then close out. But I would want to make sure that we include the wildland community as well. I've had many firefighters on here. They've talked again about you know the, the staffing issues. But it seems like the fires are getting worse and worse. And there's opposition to some of the proactive um, backburns and you know checkering and some of these things that I'm not well familiar with because I was a truck man. But um, talk to me about that community and maybe some of the proactive things that we can start doing there. Oh, absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm, though I'm familiar, this is not my background uh, as wildland, but I have uh, certainly in this position and before uh, in my previous roles had experience with wildland firefighters. And, and it is important that we recognize because they do have a lot of the same challenges and more uh, in their workspace. So what they struggle with crew size. We talked about crew size and you brought that up. Yes, they need larger crews. They need more. They're struggling with recruitment as well. And what we find a lot in that space is uh, the same thing we're starting to see in the structural environment is cannibalizing between departments. So I'm watching as we see suburban departments cannibalizing urban departments, right? I, they can't recruit, but I can recruit from that department. They're already trained, right? And so we see that the same thing's happening in the wildland space where we see, um, you know, a little bit of cannibalization going on between the different agencies, but also they're working to recruit as well. The understanding uh, of these folks when they are working on uh, the prescribed burns and whether they are actually fighting fire, right? Building resilience is one, um, resilient landscapes is one, 
but also when there is a fire and they are sent out, it's for much longer periods of time. Uh, and they're deployed uh, for days in base camps. Um, and that mental anguish, I think, is a different mental anguish than we've been talking about for structural firefighters. I think uh, their exposure, their lack of personal protective equipment, because we're still working on turnout gear for them. We're still we're appropriate turnout gear, I should say. We're still working on appropriate breathing apparatus for them. And so their overall exposure is much higher. And often it's vegetation, but we're still watching products of combustion, whether it's vegetation, you know, vegetation, what's burning, or when it hits the interface. Now we've got a whole different array of toxins that they're being exposed to without the appropriate gear. So um, there's a lot of mental anguish for them as well. But I think these long deployments is probably some of the worst um, in these uh, in the, the base camps and such. But they love what they do. I've watched uh, and met so many uh, of these folks who are very passionate about the landscape. They're very passionate about our country. They're very passionate about our water supply and the, the watersheds. And that kind of passion, you know, we need. We need people in that space. Um, and I'll just mention that one of the things that we're working on in the, the USFA is making sure that we are partnering appropriately, and we are, with the U.S. Forest Service and with the Department of Interior um, and their firefighters. So we are all understanding how we come together. One of the things that's happening in the, the landscape itself is that we see a lot of wildland climate-driven uh, you know, wildfire it's occurring in the wildland, but it's also occurring in the interface. And so we're very cognizant about talking about the location and the threats uh, in that location, but also the entity wildfire. So we're not just saying, you know, everybody for a while says wildland fire. Well, they mean all wildfire. So I want to be uh, say words matter and we want to be cognizant of what we call it. But the interface is continuing to expand and these threats are growing. We have, uh, according to the ICC, um, about a third of the U.S. population today lives in an interface. So it was wildland, it's been cleared, and we put homes and businesses there. And because we've done that, somehow we think that that geography now, because I took off the trees, it's not going to burn. Well, that's still fire-prone area, right? And that's what I think people are understanding about the continued expansion of the interface. And so those kinds of threats are evolving. And this comes back around full circle to our conversation that we've had about how many firefighters we need, how are we going to get them, how are we going to train them, how are we going to keep them trained, and how are we going to take care of them? And so these are conversations that we must have in the wildland firefighter space and in the structural firefighter space, and if certainly the structural firefighters in their training in the interface, because it's very different when you're fighting one structure fire and you're doing uh, an interior attack because the fire started internally to that structure. It's very different than fighting six, seven, eight, a thousand, where the threat of fire and the spread of fire is externally, right? Our strategies and tactics change and we don't yet have adequate training for our structural firefighters in that space. So we have to improve that and learn uh, where these come together. So a lot to do still in that space. 
Well, I want to thank you. I could talk to you for hours more, but I know that you've got another meeting backing up to this one. Um, I want to say thank you to Chief Frank Lieb for connecting us as well. Now, for people listening, where are the best places to follow and or connect with you online? Oh, that would be great. And, and first of all, let me say thank you, James, for having me. And I'm, I'm grateful to Chief Lieb as well. A uh, great friend, I'm a great admirer of, of what he does uh, for firefighters across the country and what he teaches. So um, yes, reach out. You can follow or have a look at any of our uh, materials on the USFA, that's US Fire Administration, usfa.gov. We are a component of FEMA. So you can go and search the FEMA website and find USFA as well. We have lots of blogs ourselves. Uh, we have a podcast uh, ourselves. So maybe James, you'll come and be on our podcast as well. So we can talk to you more about behavior health, uh, mental health, well-being. I love the shift conversation and uh, we'd love to hear from people. So reach out and I can certainly be found uh, with usfa.gov. So thanks again for having me and for the conversation. It was great. Mm-hmm.